We are continuing our study on the life of David. I want to remind you briefly about where we left off last week. If you remember last week, uh, anybody remember what we talked about? We talked about the six idiots. You remember last week? Um, it's unique, uh, maybe a unique way to approach a Bible study, but, but there were six people who did foolish things that shaped the story of David. And, and I'm not going to go over them all again. If you haven't heard that, it's uploaded on our website. You can go and, and listen to last week's study if you'd, want to, if you'd like to do that. But at the end of that lesson last week, David finally became king over all Israel. Remember, he became king of Judah for a while, and then eventually he was finally asked to become, the Lord raised him up to become king over all of Israel. After all of the waiting, after all of the pain that he went through, after all of the danger, after all of the horrible things that he went through, David was now king of Israel. Now, he made mistakes along the way. We know that he made mistakes along the way, but by and large, he did it the right way. And he let God lift him up instead of trying to take things into his own hands and manipulate the situation. Instead of trying to make it happen himself, he let God work it out. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, the, the hand of God seeing that. That's part of when the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. That's a big part of that. And, and you know, when you talk about that, this is not part of our lesson tonight, but when you talk about being a man after God's own heart, that means that he cared about the things that God cared about. That's the essence of it, really. Um, tonight, um, you know, if we were to compare David's life to a day, just using it as a metaphor, then what we have talked about was the morning. And now that he's the king of Israel, we're going to start kind of part two of our study. And, and this part's going to be the afternoon of David's life. And it had finally happened. Uh, David, the prophecy of Samuel was finally fulfilled. David was king over all of Israel. God had ruled in the affairs of men. And as with all great leaders, the first decisions are the most important because they signal everything that is to come. And David's first royal decisions were really wise beyond his years. And very quickly, David became... Israel's three-pronged leader, and I'll explain what that means, because he, he became the political leader, he became the military leader, and he became the religious or the spiritual leader of the nation. And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight and see what happened and how God established his rule in Israel. So let's look at these and see what we can learn from David. First of all, David became the political leader of Israel. Now Saul, he was... Uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and, he, and you remember he had established the capital in Benjamin at the city of Gibeah. And that was the tribal capital of, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul, when he became king, he just set it up right there in, in his homeland, in his home area. And now that David was king, he knew the problem was if he continued to rule from Gibeah, then that would have made a statement to all of Israel that Benjamin was still at the center of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was still at the center. But if he re remained in Hebron, which is where he had been ruling just the tribe of, of Judah, then if he had made that the, 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 the capital of Israel, then that would send a message to the rest of the land that Judah was now the center of Israel. And the truth was, neither one of those were, tr were true. And that was not what David wanted. And, and a, a new nation needed a new capital, someplace not associated with any of the tribes. But the problem was where? 
What place could, could serve such a purpose? Where could David establish a new capital that would say to all of the Middle East and all the nations that were there, we are Israel and this is our capital forever? Well, David knew right where it had to be. There was a city at the time called Jebus. We talked about Jebus uh, early on in our study. You remember that? It was where the Jebusites lived. That was why they were Jebusites, because they lived in the city of Jebus. And Jebus was the choice of God, and David knew it. And, and all he had to do, it was a real simple thing, all he had to do was capture a city that had never, ever been captured by an outside force. That's all he had to do. An impenetrable, impenetrable city, a city that was, that was a, a fortress in and of itself. In fact, it, had, it was so strong that the Jebusites mocked David and his men from, from on top of their walls, just as, as they had mocked all other people who had come and tried to, to conquer the city. They said, David, in, Genesis, in 2 Samuel 5, 6, it says, David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites. Now, it wasn't called Jerusalem yet, but the writer is referring to the city and, and uh, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. I mean, they're trash talking. That's what they're doing. They're like, they're like, David, you think you can conquer this city? Listen, this city is so well fortified. We could put our lame people up here. We could put our blind people up here. And you still are not getting in. I mean, they're trash talking him there. And David knew they were right. There was no way that his army would ever be able to breach the walls. There was no way that he could get his army over the walls and conquer that city. The way into Jebus was not going to be over the walls. But David, it's almost, it's like a movie. It's like a movie script. David said, I know another way in. And he sent, uh, he sent uh, Joab and a squad of soldiers in through this water tunnel. And they snuck in there. It's almost like, almost like the Trojan horse kind of thing where he got those people in there and then they open up the way for David and his army. And all of a sudden, all this, the battle breaks out. And, and, and when this brief and, and bloody battle was over, Jebus, the city, now belonged to David. And he renamed it. And he renamed it and he said, this is now Jerusalem. And, and he said, now we have a new capital. So a new nation now had a new capital with a brand new name, Jerusalem. And in his wisdom, David's first decision as king, it was great leadership. He made it clear that the old tribal confederation was gone. He made it by, by choosing a city that was not already a tribal capital. He, he made it clear to all Israel. He said, listen, this is not about the different tribes anymore. This is about the nation of Israel. And, and, and in its place, instead of that tribal con uh, confederation, now there was Israel, one nation. And no single tribe can claim that they were of higher significance than any other. See, with, with the capital at, at Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin could say, hey, you know, we're more important because we've got the capital. If he'd kept it in Hebron, then the tribe of Judah could say, hey, hey, we're kind of up here above you guys because we got the capital. But David said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to have it in his city that's never been owned by any tribe. You know, in, in, in fact, did you know, uh, roughly 2,800 years later, the United States made the same type of decision. 
when they established the capital of the United States at Washington, D.C., rather than one of the states. That's, that's one of the reasons why they did it. Virginia donated some land, but the capital was not in Virginia. Maryland donated some land, but the capital was not going to be in Maryland. No state could say that they were the capital of the country. And, and you know, the, those kind of decisions from the founding fathers, those decisions were informed by what they read in Scripture. And so uh, we had a new capital for a new nation. Same thing there in Jerusalem. Second of all, David became the military leader of Israel. David knew that establishing his capital within a four, former pagan stronghold instead of in one of the 12 tribes of Israel was the right political move. It was the right move as far as sending the message to the people of Israel. But he also knew that conquering an impenetrable city like Jebus would send a message across the entire Middle East. It'd be a message of saying, hey, we are to be taken seriously. Imagine what those other tribes were thinking when they heard that David did the impossible and conquered the city of Jebus that nobody else had ever been able to do. All of a sudden now that establishes them and the nations around them know, hey, this is not Saul anymore. This it certainly isn't Ishbosheth. This is David. This is different now. Now, all of these other tribes, you know, it, it struck fear in the hearts of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Amalekites and even to some degree the Philistines. But the Philistines, were, they were not quite so easily uh, cowed, you know, as you remember it wasn't very long ago they had just defeated Saul and his armies. So they're feeling a little confident. Even though David did that, they said that's pretty impressive. But listen to what happened. In 2 Samuel 5, 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. Every fighting man they could find, all their forces, they get them all together. And they, they wanted to defeat Israel as they had before. And they wanted to either capture or kill David just the same way as they had killed Saul before. In addition, though, now you understand, Philistines hated the Israelites but now it was personal. Because you remember what happened. The Philistines hated David more than any other man alive. Because when he was just a teenager, he brought down their top champion, Goliath, with a, with a, 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 a stone and a sling. He took him out. And then he tricked him, not once, but twice. First, he escaped certain death by pretending to be a madman, knowing that they were superstitious about killing the mentally deranged. Then David deceived King Achish by, uh, by uh, uh, robbing the Amalekites rather than the Hebrews. And by the time his ruse was discovered, he had now already been enthroned as king over Judah and eventually over all Israel. So King Achish, he's just livid. He is seething. He, he, he had put his trust in David. He believed he had him under his thumb. He, he, he wanted to, uh, you know, he thought he had control of him. And now he realized he had been played for a fool the whole time. And his hatred for David was absolutely uncontainable. Akish was determined to kill David or to die trying. Now, I want, I want to draw a parallel here because I think we need to, we forget this sometimes. But you're in the same position as David. I don't mean you're the king of Israel. You know, don't start going, throwing a parade or something like that. That's not what I mean. But I mean you have an enemy that hates you with a hatred that you can't even begin to comprehend. 
Satan has a personal grudge against you. You know why? He hates you because he knows you're a child of the king. He looks at you and you're created in the image of God. And every time he looks at you, he sees the image of the, of the, of the creator. He sees the image of his, of his greatest enemy, the one that he has the greatest hatred for. And because he hates him, he hates you. And he wants to control your destiny. He, and he will hit you with everything that he's got. Now, when I say he, I mean he and his demons because we forget sometimes Satan is not omnipresent, you know. So when we say Satan is doing such and such, we don't necessarily mean him, but we mean that he and his minions, that the forces of darkness are doing that. But, but, but he, is, he is constantly, that's all he wants to do. The, the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, there's not a lot left after that. That's his only plan for you. That's the only thing he wants for you. Not just for you as a child of God, but really for every, every human being. You know, although his hatred toward you is tuned up a little bit to a higher notch when you become a child of the king. But in that moment, you, you, you got to remember that you are a child of God and that you are anointed by the king himself. And, and that, uh, you know, I love the passage in, in, this, in James where it says, uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we forget the first part of that verse. The first part of, of that verse says, Submit yourself therefore to God. Then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And, and when we submit ourselves to God, we remember it draws back the scripture where it says, it draws to our memory the scripture that says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So that means if he is in me and I submit to him and I submit to his authority, then when the enemy comes against me, when I resist him, I'm not, it's not, here's the thing. We think resist means that we fight hard. No, resist means that I surrender more. I surrender more to God. You know, it's not about my strength. That's not how I overcome. I overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. I don't overcome by being strong. I overcome by surrendering to the greatness of God and, and saying, Lord, I give myself to you. I, I can't fight this battle. I turn it over to you. You know, I, 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 how many of you remember the old movie Beethoven? About the great big, not about the composer, about the great big St. Bernard. Um, there's a great scene. If I had thought, if I didn't, I didn't think we were going to be going this quite this direction. But if I thought, I, I would have had this video ready. Um, but you remember, there's a scene. You remember the little boy in that? He's just this really scrawny. That's what I looked like when I was a kid. I know it's hard to believe. I was really skinny once, but he's just tiny and scrawny. And you remember there were these bullies on the bus, and uh, he was telling his, talking to his dad about these bullies, and the dad was trying to teach him, saying, "Hey, you know, most of these guys they don't want to fight. Just." Just stand up for yourself and try to teach him, you know, how to take a stand, you know. Um, and so anyway, these bullies, they start picking him on the bus. And the bus stops. And you remember, he grabs his stuff and he runs off the bus. And these boys all come off after him and they're chasing after him. And this commotion's going on. And in the house, Beethoven, he hears the commotion and realizes something's going on. And he runs out of the house. And Beethoven is running out there. And so they, they corner this kid, these three bullies there. And they're ready to, they're ready to. To, to fight him, they're ready to beat him up. And, and so this kid says, all right, 
I better take my dad's advice. And so, so he kind of steals himself. And he puts up his puny little fist. And he goes like this. And he's ready to fight them. And as soon as he puts them up, all of a sudden, Beethoven is standing up behind him. You remember this scene? And Beethoven starts baring his teeth, this, you know, this dog that's as big as a horse. And he's kind of, you know, bearing him at these, at these bullies. And the bullies see Beethoven and run off. And as soon as they run off, the little boy goes, huh. <laughs> they didn't run because they were scared he was going to punch them. Satan doesn't run because they're afraid, he's afraid you're going to resist him. He runs because when he looks at you and you're submitted to the Father, you're submitted to Christ, then when he looks at you, he sees someone far more powerful than he is standing behind saying, I got his back. And that's why he runs. Not because I'm strong enough, but, but because I'm weak and I recognize that and I submit to the Father. See, see, this is the kingdom is constantly upside down and backwards. In that the great will be the great, the, the, the smallest, the least will be the greatest, the first will be the last, the last will be the first. It's always backwards. And in this situation, we understand those that understand they're weak will be strong in the strength of God. Anyway, let's get back to David. The Philistines. They're coming after David. They said, we're, we're going to put an end to this. You know, he thinks he's, he can make a fool out of us and get, get away with it. They come up from Gath with a huge army. And they encamp in the valley of Rephaim. And I mean, it's a huge army. They spread out their forces across the valley of Rephaim. And there's so many Philistines that their tents, it says, completely covered the floor of the valley. This is a massive army. It's every fighting man they could get together. Now, this was David's first military, great military test. And if he failed this test, he's not going to get a second chance. Uh, this was win or die. He knew it. The entire Israelite army knew it. So David gathers, you know, his advisors, his generals. And as they do, they each had their own ideas, their own plans. This, we should do this. We should do that. You can just picture it in your mind. And David says, here's what we're going to do. Get on your knees. So we're going to pray. And David understood, I need to hear from God to know what I need to do. And David heard God and he obeyed. Which, by the way, when we talk about spiritual leadership, I don't think I've said this to our board here yet, but it's one of the things I try to teach boards uh, uh, anywhere I go, is that the essence of spiritual leadership is very, very simple. The essence of spirit. Now, simple doesn't mean it's always easy to do, by the way. Golf is a simple game. It's not complicated, but it's hard to do. Okay? Spiritual leadership is not complicated. Here's what it is. Hear from God and do what he says. That's our job as, as a board. That's my job as a pastor. That's Pastor Jason's job with the, with the youth. The, the job of spiritual leadership. If you're leading anybody spiritually, which everybody here is a leader to some degree, because leadership in his essence is influence. So you have influence over somebody. Even if it's even as a mom, if you have no influence over nobody else, you, you have leadership in your home with your children. And, and, and the essence of being a spiritual leader in your home, in your, among your friends, or in a church is this. I must hear from God and then do what he says. 
And doing what he says sometimes is harder than hearing from him. Anyway, God told David, David asked the Lord, should I go out to fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replied to David, yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. And David, in essence, he said, David, go for them. You go straight on. And, and now this, this head-on attack, this is counterintuitive to say the least. To attack a massive force like this with your army, and they're, they're bigger, they're, they, they, you know, this massive army to just go headlong doesn't make any sense. It's not a good military tactic. But because God said it, they did it. And Israelites, the Israelites' victory was absolute. They routed the Philistines. Well, now King Achish is even more angry, or he's angrier. <laughs> I'm not sure I've tried to do the right English there. And in his hatred for David, he was determined to attack again. Now, here's what he thought to himself. He thought, now we know the battle plan David will use, so we'll be ready. So they made this plan. They said, let's go back there. Let's camp in that valley again. Then we'll wait for him to charge at us, just like they did last time. And they'll charge right at the middle of us. But this time, what we'll do is, you guys up front, you'll fall back on purpose, and we'll open up the middle of the ranks. And then he'll keep charging in. And then when he charges in, we'll close in behind him. We got him surrounded. And it's going to be a great victory for the Philistines. And so the Philistines spread their tents just as they planned. And David's generals, you know, they're, they're feeling pretty confident after this last victory. And they say, David, we should do what we did before. And he said, you're exactly right. We need to do exactly what we did before. Get on your knees. We got to pray. They were eager to attack, but David was listening to God instead of men. And he said, no, and this time God said, no, not like that. It's going to be a different battle plan this time. And David said, not this time. I heard from God. He gave me fresh orders, a new battle plan. And there's a lesson there for us. Not only must we listen, always listen to God, but we've got to listen for those creative variances in his word to us. In other words, just because you did something one way the last time under the direction of God does not mean that doing it the same way the next time is also the direction of God. In other words, just because, okay, he, he may tell you, I want you to go speak to this person and say this thing. Well, the next time he wants to speak to somebody, it might be a whole different approach. You can't just assume that what God used in the past, he's going to use now. See, that's what happens in churches, especially churches that have been around a long time. One of the most uh, uh, hated, uh, feared uh, words, discouraging words that pastors can hear is, is when they're trying to do something new that the Lord has laid on their heart and somebody from the church says, well, we've never done it like that before. Or, or, or <laughs> even worse is, we tried that. Um, well, maybe you did, but maybe you did it wrong. Maybe it was the wrong time, the wrong, right thing at the wrong time. You know, all kinds of reasons. But, but to say, well, we've never done it that way before. You're saying God can only use this method. But we've got to hear from God on what he wants to do now. Because a, a new church calls for new ideas. A new day means new problems and therefore new answers. A, a new generation means that there are new obstacles and, and there are new ways to overcome them. So... Listen for God's variances. Listen for what he says every time you approach it. Don't just assume 
that what he said last time is still the same way he wants to approach the, new, the problem in your life this time. Uh, le- learn to listen to him and how to overcome today and not, not just how you overcame yesterday. Because, and now I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, because we, when we think about the will of God, what we tend to do is we focus on the what. What should I do? What do you want me to do, God? But you know what? Equally important to God is the how and the when. But that's a whole different lesson. Maybe we'll get to that another time. So anyway, God gave David a new plan. He said, do not attack them straight on. This is exact opposite, the Lord said. Instead, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. When you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on the alert. That will be the signal that the Lord is, is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David told his men, God will tell us when to move. When you hear the sound of marching in the treetops, that's the moment when we're going to attack. And that's a, that's a, that, I mean, that'll preach. That's a whole different message about uh, the, the, the sound of marching in the treetops. But there's, there's another lesson in this, and it's a hard one for us, and it's one that I come back to a lot because it's one that we struggle with in our fast-paced, instantaneous, I-want-it-all-now culture. The, the greatest and maybe the most difficult sp- spiritual discipline in the spiritual life for us is waiting. It's waiting. Even when, you know, even when it feels like the Philistines are bearing down on you and, and you've got to attack now, Learn to wait on God's signal. Even when circumstances are bearing down on you and you think to yourself, I've got to do something. Wait on God. You know, I was reading today, someone wrote this, you know, that uh, maybe you've heard somebody, somebody say something like this. They'll say something like, you know, don't just stand there. Do something even if it's wrong. Well, that's the dumbest advice I've ever heard. Don't do it if it's wrong. Wait until it's the right thing to do and then do that. Wait for the Lord. Don't march out in front of him. Don't, don't, try to, don't get out in front of God. Allow him to go before you. And then in that moment when it's just the right time, when the, when the wind of the Spirit stirs the trees and the sound of marching fills the treetop, then you charge into the valley and you do what God told you to do. But wait on him and and that's what they did they waited and when the wind of the spirit began to to blow around in those treetops and the sound of marching filled those treetops then they marched into the valley and once again they wiped out the confused philistines and through this david established himself as a military leader of israel by listening to the voice of the lord third thing was he became the religious or the spiritual leader of israel so David established himself as Israel's political leader by making his new capital uh, in this old pagan stronghold of Jebus rather than one of the tribal capitals. He had proven he was a great military leader by conquering the city of Jebus and then the, the two victories over the Philistines in the Valley of Rephaim. Now David knew this. He knew that he needed to make Jerusalem not just the military and political capital of the nation of Israel, but he needed to make it the spiritual center as well. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, you, you see a lot of differences between Saul and David when you see these things because Saul would do things without consulting the Lord. And sometimes even when the Lord spoke to him, he acted in disobedience. 
David would wait on the Lord. Well, during this time reign of, of Saul, you never really even hear about the Ark of the Covenant. Just not even important. It's just off somewhere. Well, it, it turns out the Ark of the Covenant had for years been stored in a tent in the old military capital of, of Bala of, Is, of Judah. And David said to himself, how can we say we serve the God of Israel if we don't even have the Ark of, of the God of Israel here in Jerusalem? He said, we need that blessed presence. We must bring the ark to Jerusalem. So David organized this, uh, this amazing, splendid parade to bring the ark from Bala of Judah up to, up to Jerusalem. And the ark was carefully loaded onto a cart, an ox cart, an ox cart. I want you to hear this. David was going to bring the ark to Jerusalem on a Philistine invention. David intended to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which, which, which at that time, you know, the Spirit of God didn't dwell in people like it does now. The presence of God was there with the Ark. He was going to bring the presence of God into Jerusalem the same way that he would carry stolen Amalekite loot into the Philistine capital. And bring back the Ark. Now listen, that was a good decision. That was the right thing. It was the right decision. But, God, but David didn't do it God's way. Remember, it's not just the what. It's also the how and the when that matters to God. The Ark of the Covenant was never supposed to be carried on an ox cart. It was supposed to be carried on poles on the, on the shoulders of Levites. And, and when the ox cart, they had this cart, this, uh, the Ark on the cart, and the, when the ox cart was going through this this creek bed and the and and the the oxen moved in such a way and it, it, it the cart lurched in the creek bed causing the ark to wo wobble and this well-intentioned man named Uzzah foolishly put his hand out to steady the ark. The scriptures say, then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Now all of a sudden. What had been this amazing celebration because he had musicians. It was this big event. Can you imagine how quickly that all wound down? And David was confused. I mean, he's trying to do God's will. God, I thought this was what I was supposed to do. I mean, Uzzah was trying to do the right thing. He was trying to do God's will. He didn't mean anything by it. His motives were pure, yet he ended up dead in a creek bed in the middle of David's parade, which, by the way, is a reminder to us that our sin does not affect only us. It impacts other people. What David realizes, he can go no farther. He says, uh, I'm not going to mess with this anymore. I mean, this guy is dead. Now, now, there's a good indication that we, he probably didn't even realize he, that it was, he was doing it the wrong way. We don't know that for sure. But he realizes, I, I can't go any further. I mean, this, this is a dangerous situation. I can't bring this into Jerusalem like this. Who knows what's going to happen there? And so he looks around and sees a farmer beside the road. He says, what's your name? This stunned farmer looks at him and says, uh, Obed-Edom, you know, kind of nervously. And he said, well, Obed-Eden, the ark of God is going to dwell in your home. <laughs> now, listen, you just saw a guy drop dead. I'm not sure he was too excited about this news. You know what I'm saying? I don't think Obed-Eden was like, 
Woohoo! I, I think he was more like, the king said it, so we got to do it. Now, it would be easy to hear the story of Uzzah and the ark and, and accuse God. I mean, he was just trying to help, right? He, he didn't, I mean, he didn't want the ark of the covenant to fall and get all muddy. I mean, he didn't want it to dent. He didn't want anything to break. What's the harm in that? What's the harm in that? Well, the harm is this. God does not need your help. You don't need to prop him up. He props us up. You know, uh, propping God up, you know, honestly, that's been one of the major pitfalls of the evangelical community. You know, we, we embroider testimonies, make them a little grander than what they really are. They, they, we exaggerate miracles. We, you know, we leave out little details. We cut corners. We try to, somehow, we think we have to protect God's reputation or make it appear greater than it, than, than it seems to us. And, but God does not need us to prop Him up or help Him to save face. He's perfectly capable of taking care of his own reputation. He's got it all under control. He doesn't need a, a Philistine invention to carry his power, and he doesn't need a helping hand along the way. He's perfectly capable of taking care of himself. Now later, David remembered the ark of God. and He remembered that disastrous day when the outbreak of God's wrath killed Uzzah. But you know what? He still longed for the ark to come to Jerusalem. But there's this haunting question in his mind. Is it safe? Which, by the way, can I tell you this? Serving God's not always safe. You know, they, they say, well, the center of God's will is the safest place to be. Well, sometimes the center of God's will is a very dangerous place. Jim Elliott, missionary to the Aka Indians, gave his life on the field. He was in the center of God's will. But that's a different study as well. But David's there in Jerusalem. I still want the ark, but I don't know if I should bring it here. It's safe. I mean, a guy died right in front of my very eyes. And so David sent men to the house of Obed-Edom. He, he, he was eager for a report. He hadn't heard anything. You know, I mean, as far as he knew, maybe all of Obed-Edom's household, they could be dead by now. I mean, it was not too much of a stretch to believe that that's a possibility because God struck one person dead. So if they did something wrong there, they might all be dead. So so David had heard nothing from Obed-Edom since the day that Uzzah died. And, and he sent his men. And when his men returned, David, I can just see him, you know, a little anxious asking him, you know, well, are, is Obed-Edom's household dead? How, how are things over there? And the captain shook his head. He said, you know, just half in, half in joy and half in disbelief. He said, your majesty, uh, they're not dead. It's just the opposite. He, he, he said his fields have more bushels per acre than all the fields around him. When there's a drought all around, his fields are getting rain. His vines are filled with grapes. His silos are bulging with wheat. His cattle have more milk than I even thought was possible. And his wife is pregnant with twins. Now, I didn't exactly say those things, but he said, they said, they said he is living in abundant blessings of God. Here's another great lesson for us. At times, you know, we may be tempted to reject the supernatural power of God out of fear of the unknown. And then what we do is we tend to seek it out again in times of need. But we can't park God's power in a farmer's barn just because we don't understand it or because we don't want to 
deal with it or because we're afraid of it. That's, that's, that's just another way of trying to control God. So, you know, let God do what he wants to do the way he wants to do it in your life. He, he's a God of blessing and abundance. He's also a God of discipline. Let him do what he needs to do. Don't hide in a basement. Don't hide him in a basement because you're afraid of the unknown. Don't hide him in a back door of your, of your life and, and say, well, he can only go so far here because, because I don't know what he's going to do if I let him loose in the rest of my life. No, you don't. That's part of the adventure of serving him. But whatever he does, we know that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, David, he knew what had to be done. He knew that the blessing that the ark brought to the household of Obed-Edom had to come to Israel. He knew it was time to retrieve the ark. But now, this time, though, he left the ox cart behind. He had either taken it seriously, what he already knew, or he had done some research and discovered, oh, there's a certain way I'm supposed to move the ark. But this time he said, forget the ox cart. This time he did it God's way because it wasn't just about what God wanted. It was about the way God wanted it to be done. Details matter to God, by the way. That's a lesson to us from this. You know, we say, it's just, you know, the, the, the hoops on the end that the poles go through carrying, these are little details, they don't matter. Well, apparently they do. And the details of our lives matter, you know. Well, you, can't just, you can't just let little things go in your life and say, oh, it's just, you know, it's a little detail. It doesn't matter to God. Yes, it does. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little things in our lives that we let go that eventually lead to bigger things. That's like I, I, I said, I think it was this past Sunday, um, you know, that uh, nobody, you know, no man has ever accidentally fallen into an adulterous affair. It's, it's this process that takes place. And, and, you know, you don't get to the big sin. We call it a big sin. Uh, uh, just, you know, on, on a spur of the moment overnight, it's, it's a series of smaller compromises that get you to the place where you're willing to make the big one. So anyway, David this time gets it right. Imagine the scene. Rather than loading the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, the priest, or not the priest, the Levites are carrying the Ark the way that it should be. And it's this massive celebration the, the, the musicians are, are playing, the singers are singing, and it's just, and they would, they would go, listen, this is, can you imagine this procession? They would walk six paces and stop and sacrifice an animal in praise to God. When that was done, they'd walk six more paces and stop and do another, have another church service right then. There was this process all along the way. David said, I'm not taking any chances. I'm going to make sure that I honor God in every way possible, every step of the way. And there was worship and dancing and praise, and God was truly enthroned again on the praises of his people. And then as the ark neared Jerusalem, you know, David, he was so overcome with joy at the idea that the ark was coming to the capital, that it was that the blessing of God was entering into the capital city of the nation, and, and it was coming, and he was so overcome in the power of the Spirit, he just began to dance. 
And he, and he danced with such abandon that he cast off his outer garments and danced unashamedly in a linen ephod, which is uh, not much more than just a light shirt and some undergarments. He's dancing in his underwear. But he didn't care. He didn't care. He was filled with awe and with joy for the, for the presence and the power of God that had come into the city that he loved so deeply. And everything that had happened since the day Samuel first came to Bethlehem and had, had anointed him with oil all led up to this moment. And despite all the running and hiding and bloodshed, this great blessing from God made it worth all the years of sacrifice. And all David could do in that moment in this joyous, holy moment was dance. Now, it's interesting to note this. No, and this is something important for us to remember nowadays. Nowhere in this passage do we read that David makes anybody else dance. The joy and blessings of the day were for everyone, not just for David, but David never demands that anybody else worship the same way that he was worshiping. Now that's an important thing for us to remember because it's easy for us to think that somehow physical demonstration is all that matters. Uh, everyone worships and rejoices differently. Isn't that true? I mean, didn't God make us all kinds of different personalities? You know, there's some that are loud and boisterous and there are some that you're just a little shocked that they even say a word. Well, you know, to that quiet little introvert, do you think God is displeased with their worship because they're not jumping and shouting? No, God's the one who made them that way. You know, some people dance. Some people clap their hands. Some people raise their hands. And some people fold their hands. I, I knew a guy... He was the superintendent of the Southern Idaho District when we were there. And his wife was this, she was just a crazy wild woman. You know, I mean, she just never knew what she was going to say. She was loud and boisterous, had a lot of fun. But the, his, her, her husband, the superintendent of the district, he was a very reserved man. I mean, he wasn't shy or anything, but he was just a fairly quiet man, reserved. And she used to say that you could tell when he got excited because he, he took his hand out of his pocket. That's how you knew he was excited. <laughs> You know, that's okay. That's the freedom that we have in the Spirit of the Lord to worship in an authentic way no matter who we are. See, this is the thing. I heard Dr. Rutland teach this, and it was almost a revolutionary teaching for me to be able to get this, was that when the Holy Spirit comes, He moves through you as you. It doesn't change who you are. He made you who you are. And so you don't have to take on the personality of somebody that you, that you look at and say, oh, I think of them as really spiritual. And you don't have to be like them. You be who you are. Let God use you as you are. Let the Holy Spirit move through you as you. Does that make sense to anybody? Well, anyway, after the ark was placed in the special tent that David had prepared for it and burnt offerings were made to the Lord, J David's joyful day continued. 2 Samuel 6, 19 says that he gave everyone in all of Israel a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. He gave everybody a, a meal that day. And 2 Samuel uh, tells us that, but when the, when the party of the century was over, 
The, the ecstatic and generous David returned home. It's been the, the best day of his life, even better than when he became king. Because the presence of God has come into the capital city of Jerusalem. He's had the, the most amazing day worshiping God, dancing before the Lord. And he's, you can just picture him, you know, if you ever, uh, uh, any, anybody ever come home from work and you've just had a great day, you know, you can tell when somebody comes home if, if they had a good day or a bad day, right? You know, if it's been a bad day, they walk in and it's immediate, you're like, okay, I need to step back from this. But David, you know, you just imagine him walking into this, his home and it's been the, the best day he's ever had in his life. And there he was met by a furious Michael. You remember who Michael was? His first wife, the one given to him by King Saul. And David's confused. I mean, what could possibly be wrong on a glorious day like this? He, he was in a generous frame of mind. He was ready to bless Michael, but she would have none of it. Michael just pours out her stored up bitterness on David. What a pathetic sight, David. King of Israel dancing in the street today like some pervert exposing himself in front of all those young women. How could you disgrace yourself like that? You disgraced me and you disgraced all of Israel. Michael just cannot bring herself to rejoice with her husband. And she takes no delight in this historic moment for Israel. She, that's lost on her. It doesn't matter to her that this is a, a, a momentous occasion for the nation and for her husband, the king. And she takes no delight in it. Her emotions are all tangled up. I mean, she once loved David and, 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 and he also loved her when they were young, but... Uh, and, but she also loved Paltiel, and she, she also loved her vengeful, demonized father, perhaps more than anybody else in, in her life. To her detriment, her love and demotion, devotion to her father, even after his death, will not allow her to find joy in her new life as a queen. And s just stung by this contempt spewing from his wife, David says, that's not what you're angry about. You're not angry because I danced in front of all those people. You're angry because God removed your father from the throne and put me there in his place. You're a bitter woman who cannot quit being the daughter of a king in order to become the wife of one. God placed me as ruler over Israel. And I, if I want to dance before the Lord, I will dance before the Lord. I will do it joyfully. And if you think that I look foolish, then so be it. I will dance like a fool if the spirit leads me to do such things. Michael's standing there in just stunned silence as David continues. He says, as for those young women who saw me dance, they don't hate me. They don't despise me. They hold me in honor because they know that my act of worship was genuine. But my wife, my wife is ashamed of her husband and the, the king. And the scripture closes out this scene with this one ominous sentence. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, again, not even referred to as the wife of David. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Perhaps Michael's sourness and bitterness of spirit simply dried her up as a woman. Or maybe David just said bluntly, I don't need you. And, I'm never gonna, and he never had sex with her again. We don't know. I mean, after all, he was not short of wives. You know. But what we do know, yeah, that's right. 
What we do know is that she never had a child. So though she was the daughter of a king, as well as the wife of a king, she would never be the mother of a king. And there's a lesson in this for us. You know what? You cannot, you cannot control the suffering inflicted on you by others. However, you can control your response to it. You know, my heart goes out to Michael. You know, she was, she was a pawn in a lot of ways between, in this political chess game between two powerful uh, giants of the land. You know, she was a pawn used by her father. She had no choice who she was going to marry. It was a different world that they lived in back then. Uh, th- there's an African proverb that says this. I love this. It says, when two elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers most. Well, David and Saul were the elephants, and Michael was the grass. And even though those things happened to her, the problem was she was never able to get past that. She held on to that. Uh, And though she was in love with David and he with her when they were younger, Saul used her badly, made her his spy, his unwitting accomplice in, in a conspiracy against David. Michael would love much, suffer much, and mourn much in her life. But there's also much to learn from Michael because the reality is there will be pain in our lives. Events over which we have no control can and will happen. How many of you have experienced that? What we can control is how we respond. Because in that moment, we can allow bitterness to take root and dry us up, or we can choose to trust God and praise Him and experience His joy. I mean, imagine, what if David's relationship with Michael had gone differently? What if Michael had said to herself, my father was wrong, and now he's gone. Now I live with David. Sure, I was given to him twice and lost another man whom I love, but nevertheless, I am David's queen, and he is my king. My husband is in the Spirit of God and is blessed to see the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem. I choose to love this man with all my heart and make our home a happy one. If only, if only Michael, instead of spewing venom at her husband, had hurled herself into his arms and kissed him on the mouth and said, I saw you dance before the Lord today and I'm proud to have a man who loves God even more than I do. Oh, how I love you. If only. If only. Perhaps the passage that tells us she had never, that she never had children would never have been written. Perhaps her son would have built God's temple. Perhaps we would never even heard of Bathsheba. We don't know. All the dominoes that would have fallen differently, if only. And if there's a lesson in her life for us, I think it's this. Here's something I know. I've seen it happen over and over and over and over and over again. I've I've been in full-time ministry since 85. How many years is that? 33? Something like that? I I majored in the Bible, not math. (laughs) And I've seen it over and over and over again. The enemy wants nothing more than to bring offense into your life and into, into our church. I'm here to give you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put a banner up. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it very clear to everybody in here. Sooner or later, one way or another, you will be offended by someone. Maybe even by me. It won't be intentional. Offense is going to happen. Offense will come. The question is, the question is not, will I be offended? Will something offensive happen to me or to somebody that I love? Sometimes it's that we get even more offended when something happens to somebody else that we care about. The question is not, will offense come? The question is, how will I respond to that offense? Will we, in that moment, grab hold of that offense and refuse to let it go? Will we, will we live in bitterness and unforgiveness the way Michael did? Because she was going back to events years and years before that she was not willing to let go. She was not willing to, to, to come to grips with the fact that her father was no longer king. She was not willing to come to grips with the fact that she had been separated from David and that she had been separated from Paltiel and all of these things that happened. And she lived in this bitterness and she lived in this unforgiveness and it led to the end of her life, uh, a life full of barrenness, which was the worst thing that could happen to a Jewish woman. Or will we learn to forgive? Because here's what I want you to understand. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Okay? You need to understand this. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision that we make. You, you hear what I'm saying? If you, if you are offended and you wait for the feeling of forgiveness to come upon you, it will not come. The reality is, is that when we choose not to forgive when we hold a grudge when we when we when we when we refuse to cancel the debt because that's ultimately what forgiveness is you know if you owe the bank money and they say we forgive the debt what does that mean means you don't owe them anything right when you forgive somebody else you're saying you don't owe me anything you don't owe me an apology you don't owe me restitution you don't owe me anything i forgive it that's what forgiveness means. When we refuse to forgive, Jesus taught us that that shows us, uh, it proves to us that we don't really understand the grace of God and how much we have been forgiven by God. How many remember the parable of um, the, the man who, who was dragged before his master and he owed this massive amount? You remember that story? I mean, it was, it was a massive amount that he would never be able to repay in his entire lifetime. It'd be like if, if I owed somebody, you know, uh, $2 million, there's no way that I'm going to earn $2 million to be able to pay him. And the man said, pay me what you owe me now. And he said, I can't, I can't, but please just give me time. I'll, I'll, I'll pay everything. Uh, I'll pay everything, but I promise you I'll do it. There was no way it was ever going to happen. And the man looked at him and he had compassion. And he said, I forgive your debt. All right, that's us before God. Our debt is massive. And he says out of compassion, he says the debt's paid because of my son. Now I choose to forgive you. So what did that servant go do? Anybody remember? Yeah, he, someone owed him money. That's right. He went to somebody else 
who owed him money. He had, it, had him in debt, and, and he grabbed hold of him, and he said, and, his, and he shook him, and he said, pay me what you owe me. And if the interesting thing, when you read that, that man said exactly the same thing to him that he had said to his master, only he said, no, you're going to pay me now, and he, when he couldn't, he threw him into debtor's prison. And then the servants around saw this, and they went and told the master, Said, hey, hey, you remember that guy you, you gave, forgave the $2 million? Yeah, I remember him. That was, that was really, you know, a sweet day. You know what he did? He went out and found somebody who owed him 100 bucks, and, and, and the guy begged him to forgive the debt, and he threw him into debtor's prison. What? He did what? And he called him before him and reinstated his debt. Jesus said, the Father will do the same if you do not forgive those who sin against you. That's a, listen, this, isn't, this is a life or death issue. And what happened was that that man should have recognized his debt was far greater and yet it was forgiven. Therefore, I can forgive this smaller debt. The message for us is this. My sin against God is greater than anyone else's sin against me. And if God can forgive me, then by the grace of God, with the help of his spirit, I then can choose to forgive you. But see, this is what I know. The enemy, uh, the number one tool that he uses to try to bring, to, to try to bring to a church to a place where it is powerless is to bring division. And it will, and listen, you will always feel justified in your anger and in your hurt and may even be justified in that sense. But it's understanding that learning the lesson of Michael, that if I live in that the rest of my life, then what happens is bitterness and unforgiveness destroys our future hopes and our future dreams. And it keeps us individually and as a church, it keeps us from seeing new birth. It keeps a church from reaching the lost when that church is still living with battles in between and unforgiveness and bitterness inside there. Jesus said, you can, you can finish this for me. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. That what? That you have love for one another. One of, the, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have as a church that is often unused because we're not willing to forgive and love one another the way that the Bible tells us to is that one of the most powerful evangelistic tools is for us to love each other because the, the world does not have anything like that. They cannot understand the love of God that flows between the people of God because they can't they don't experience that. And when they see that 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 gives a hunger for them. They begin to say, you know, I I don't I don't know that I agree with their doctrine. I, I don't know if I agree with everything that they believe. But I can't argue with their love. There's something there. Let me explore that. But when we give in to the temptation to hold on to offenses, 
and live like Michael, then we as a birth, as a church, become barren. And we don't want that, do we? So I challenge you, you know, listen, I'm just here to tell you. I mean, I am not the prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I'm here to tell you the opportunity will come for you to get upset or offended at somebody else in the church. It will come. And in that moment, I want you to remember how much you've been forgiven and say, you know what, I'm not going to latch on to, to a smaller issue after I've been forgiven all that I've been forgiven. I'm going to forgive. And you know what, it, it, you, you'll need the Lord's help with that. It doesn't come naturally to us. You know, I, I remember, I've listen, in ministry, the challenge in ministry is to have a thick skin and a soft heart. And that's not easy to do. But, I mean, I've had things said about me. Um, I had a lady one time corner a deacon in front of a crowd of people and just, just saying, and, said, and she, said, she said to him, talking about me, he said, I don't even know if he's saved. You know what, that hurt. Uh, I, I kind of thought it found it a little bit funny in one sense in that she stayed in the church. So I'm thinking, now if you don't know if your pastor's saved, why are you staying there? You might want to find a saved pastor to sit under. But, but I didn't say that to her. But, but I tell you that story because it hurt me. And, and you know, then when I, when I saw her, when she would walk in the back part of the church in myself, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go the other way. I didn't want to go talk to her. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, we didn't want to say anything mean to her. I just didn't want to deal with it. I just didn't want to be around her. But you know what the Lord would make me do? He'd say, you go give her a hug. And I'd go up and I'd give her a hug. And then I found out well, that's kind of fun. Because, <laughs> you know, you're like, come here, give me a hug. And you know, they're like, oh, no, I love you. And in love, we can overcome all those things. But the Lord has to help us. And he will. He never asked us, never told us to do something uh, that, that he was not going to empower us to do. So when he says, love your neighbor, he'll empower you to do that. When he says, love your enemy, he'll empower you to do that. When he says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you, he'll empower you to do that. Amen. He's a good God, isn't he? Yes. Amen.